uh, talking about a few of the verses. The saying is trustworthy. Anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Verse 8, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to see you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the spirit and the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Okay, pray with Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray tonight that you grant us uh, clear thoughts about a, a hard and confusing topic. Uh, bear with me, Lord, in all my uh, weakness and hypocrisy on a topic like this. Lord Jesus, help us to hear uh, what we as men are called to, help the uh, ladies in the room uh, have a clear vision, Lord, of, uh, of what men are supposed to be as well, and how they can encourage men in their lives uh, to strive for this. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Well, can somebody just add with me? I was reading the news recently, and uh, to the right, you know, the news feed on your internet, there's always a bunch of junky advertisements. I wore a plaid shirt for Man Night with the whole nail boat. Because I have very muscular elbows. Shirt could not contain them. Anyway, this ad um, featured an attractive young lady that was dressed either as a hippie or some flower goddess. Not really sure which. Uh, with this not very subtle message printed clearly on the ad, I'd like you better if you had big muscles. That's what it said. And below, in a smaller uh, font, it read, Cambridge scientists have discovered a revolutionary secret to help you build muscle. Very subtle there. Men, if you want to be men, liked by women, you need more armor plate ding muscle on you. Uh, and surely you've seen all the commercials. And if you've noticed all the Viagra, Cialis commercials, watch them carefully. The men get younger every year. I'm not kidding. In about 10 years, they're going to be advertising these things to 12 years olds. Um, planting in us this deep security that we're not manly enough and no woman will have us if we're not uh, muscular and viral. Uh, so this is one culturally prevalent image of manhood. Man is this testosterone-driven, uh, muscle-plated monster, probably well-tanned with perfect white teeth. There's another term for this, and it's called a boy toy. 
uh, for some wealthy cougar. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, another image, and this is uh, pretty prevalent too, and if you've been paying attention to some films lately, you'll see this. This is uh, man as the unemployed, romantically challenged loser. Uh, likable, affable, uh, but just sort of helpless and hopeless. So think of uh, the main characters in the movies like Knocked Up or The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Uh, wonderfully funny, nice, but hopeless. His first cousin is someone you see all the time, and that is the perpetually entertained, happy, ESPN-loving, beer-drinking, bromancing couch potato, featured in every light beer commercial. The guys just, they just never grow up. These are all very common images of manhood that we're uh, confronted with. And I, I would say they all have one thing in common. They're all, they're all wonderfully confused. We don't know what men are supposed to be. Uh, ben Stiller and his character in the movie Greenberg, which I doubt anyone has really seen, uh, supposed to be really good and really painful. He, he's a deeply insecure man, very cynical, and uh, he's aware of it. And uh, at one point where he's hanging out with his best friend alone for his birthday, uh, they find themselves calling each other man, man, hey man. And he says in a moment of reflection, we call each other man, but it's a joke. It's like imitating other people. What he's saying is, we don't even know what we're talking about when we call each other men. We don't know what we're doing. And uh, I would argue, and I'm going to argue tonight, guys, ladies, you're eavesdropping, so enjoy the conversation. Uh, that due to, to our own sinful hearts, men, and how it manifests itself, along with all the cultural confusion that we're swimming in, uh, it's really easy for us to drift. Men by nature, you're, you're drifters, at least in your sinful nature, to drift into wrong-headed notions of masculinity. Uh, it's easy for us to uh, be passive and alternatively to be passive-aggressive instead of engaged. It's easy for us uh, to adopt postures of manhood because we don't really know what manhood is, so we adopt a posture. Um, we wait. We hide. Sometimes we run. We're not really sure what else we should do. Tonight, we're going to see is that uh, we men must diligently pursue what God calls us to be. It's a very simple outline. I didn't bring it out for you. I'm sorry, but you can remember this, man. Uh, we're called to move. We're called to be marked. Men are are those creatures that are called to move and uh, that are marked in a certain way. So this text, if you noticed, uh, it's an exceptional. The situation here that uh, Paul is writing to Timothy is it's, it's a church that's a mess because there are other men in the presence of the church that are exactly the opposite of what Paul's arguing here. Uh, they're leading the church astray. They're not good men. And, and Paul is writing to Timothy, we need leaders, overseers that are like this. So there's a sense in which this text does not apply to all men. There's a sense in which uh, this text is, is calling you all to a very high calling. Um, in verse 1 he says the saying is trustworthy you can bank on this you can believe this man Uh, and then he calls us and tells us throughout the text how we are to behave in the church in the community and and behave is not some acting or posturing it's living, it's how to live well in the midst of community what Paul is talking about here for us as men it might be easy for you to say well these are a special group of men, these are the leaders I don't have to be like that um, quit slumming it up. Uh, this is a, this is a call to manhood. 
This is a call to aspire, and that's exactly the, the, the terminology that Paul uses. Uh, we're called to move, and the first thing we're going to do is to aim high. First one, if anyone, it's an open invitation, men, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He aspires. It's a wonderful word. I, uh, when I was a young boy, I worked at a farm. I grew up in a very rural area. Farm down the road. And uh, it was a miserable job. My job was to feed cows and cut grass. And that was about it. And play basketball with this kid. <laughs> Sounds fun. It wasn't. He spit on me, actually. Um, it was a terrible job. And uh, I didn't have the best attitude. And the woman that ran the farm, uh, super matriarchal pulled me aside one day and gave me this long lecture on how attitude equals altitude. And I was boiling. I always did a good job. But she was telling me I wasn't aspiring enough to cut the grass. Shovel to cow poop. I need to be aspiring for it. But this word comes with some baggage for me. And yet, I think it's very important, man, uh, that we hear what Paul is saying. Aim high. Why is that such low standards for yourself? The culture does a very good job of paying money. Um, why is that such low standards for yourself? Aspire to great things. And uh, what Paul is saying here is you should aspire, you should desire a noble task. A good work, verse 1. The office of an elder, a leader in the church. Uh, and I'm not saying all of you are called to that office. I am arguing, though, along with Paul, you're going to aspire to something. Aspire to be a great man. Aspire to be a leader. Aspire to be a wonderful person that God's people can trust. And uh, Paul's going to describe what this man's like. Uh, in, a, in a recent article that came out a year ago in the Atlantic, uh, is, is entitled The End of Men. Anybody read that article? It's a great article. The article goes at great lengths to make the argument that uh, men, you're not quite that is Jornel, but culturally speaking, as regards relevance, you're getting there. Um, she, she wasn't being harsh when she wrote the article, but she was simply pointing to statistics. Something like 60% of, of college students are now women. A drastic change in 20 years. That of the 15 uh, largest growing uh, fields of industry, only two of them are now predominantly held by men. They are computer engineer and janitor. Women increasingly are occupying managerial and professional jobs, and men are not. And uh, it's sort of well summed up as they interviewed one particular guy. He was sort of known as the Marlboro Man. He wasn't really the Marlboro Man, but he was this... uh, uh, cutting-edge figure in the 70s, he's the guy that devised uh, the scientific method by which you could potentially choose the gender of your child. And uh, at the time, feminists threw a fit, saying this is the end of women as we know it. He didn't think that was necessarily the case, but he was this big, obnoxious Texan and uh, certainly rubbed all the feminists the wrong way. And they interviewed him for this article, and he sort of laughed. He's like, yeah, how'd that work out? Today, 75% of parents choose a girl. 30 years ago, uh, some would have chosen a girl, but they thought about the future that women had and all the limited opportunities they might have in our sexist society. Well, she can't do this or that. Uh, today, there's none of that. There's nothing a woman can't do. That's a good thing. Um, and as they interviewed the guys, like, well, uh, I can sum it up like this. I have a 26-year-old uh, niece. She's a chemist. She's tall and beautiful, and she's ready to conquer the world. My grandsons were the same age. I told them, don't get drunk and wreck the truck. Um, that's only the expectation, men. 
that our culture has for a lot of you. Don't get drunk and wreck the truck. The future's in the hands of the women. Again, that's not a terribly bad thing. Women, I'll be talking about you next week. Um, I'm just talking about guys here. Men, are you going nowhere? That's the, that's the argument in the article. That you're listless, apathetic, that you're stuck, that you have no interest going anywhere, that you're either stuck because of entitlement issues, it'll all work out in the end, daddy and mommy will build me out, surely I'll get a job, someone will realize what a valuable skill I have, sitting here on the couch all day drinking like beer, playing video games. Um, a simple question. Are you aiming for anything? Are you aspiring to be anything? Have you given thought not only to what you want to do, you want to be? Have you given any thought to the kind of man you want to be? Or are you just thinking, occupationally, I'll do this or that? Paul is calling us to aspire to be something noble, to be a great man, to be a good man, uh, one marked by character. Uh, what's interesting and ironic, and this is sort of true of Christianity, to be great, you have to be made humble. And here, t- to move up, to, to, a, to aim high, to aspire, you have to dig down deep. And we sort of see this uh, hinted at in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And it goes on to describe the person of Jesus. Um, becoming a great man, becoming a good man, isn't a matter of acting. It's a matter of becoming. It's not about putting on this or that trait. It's about becoming a different kind of person. And Christianity is really clear about this. Um, you do this by becoming like Jesus. That real growth and real change doesn't happen up there in the fruits on the outside and the behavioral visible realm. It happens deep down in your heart at the level of the root. Um, and Paul is describing, if you will here, that as, in verse 16, the mystery of godliness. A weird phrase. What is the mystery of godliness? The mystery of how we become godly? He does nothing here to describe who Jesus is and what Jesus is done. Jesus is the mystery of godliness. It's what Jesus has done, coming in the flesh, coming near, drawing near, uh, doing his work on the earth, being proclaimed in the world, uh, being believed on, uh, reigning in glory. It's what Jesus has done. Uh, the phrase, a self-made man, is a, is a pretty popular phrase, and it should not exist because it's not true. There is no such thing as a self-made man. There never has been. Every one of you, man, be the product of your mommy and daddy. Uh, even if you don't know them, even if they're absent. Genetically, uh, the nature stuff, and even the nurture stuff. And whether it was good or bad, it's inescapable. There are no self-made men. Um, and the same is true in Christianity. Uh, we don't stop automatically and throw away all the bad stuff that we learned from our daddies or the other men in our life. Uh, God has to redeem it. And he redeems it in the person of Jesus. We don't simply start being better men on our own, in some self-made fashion. Uh, we become these kind of men by growing, and this is hard for you, independence. By growing independence on the person of Jesus. You don't make yourself a good man. This is the way you learn. You know this, you know this inherently. As you were a child growing up, try, trying to figure out what manhood meant, what did you do? You looked to the men around, and actually you learned from them. Whether good or bad, you learned from them. From your dad, from your uncles, from your dad's friends, from the older boys in class, which you probably shouldn't have any attention to. Um, that's how you learned, what, good or bad, what manhood was. The same is true here with Jesus. If you want to learn what it means to be a good man, you do so by depending on him. 
by looking to him. Uh, in my small hometown, there's this unique character. I was just back home recently. I, I assumed this guy was dead, uh, but he's not. Uh, we call him Roadrunner. I'm not sure anyone really knows his name, um, his real name. We call him Roadrunner because Roadrunner runs up and down the road. And uh, he has a way, especially like during 10Ks, of just sort of showing up and running. Even though he didn't enter the race, he usually was wearing like, nice dress shoes. Um, but anyway, if you ever, and this has happened many times, if you ever pull up to Roadrunner as he's running, like, he doesn't just like run a little bit, he like runs 13 miles to town. If you ever pull over and say, hey, uh, would you like a ride? He'll say, all seriousness, no, I'm in a hurry. Um, now, that sounds a little ridiculous. Guys, you do this all the time. You are running frantically somewhere, but you're not stopping and thinking about where you're going or how you're getting there, or how the path you're choosing is forming you and shaping you. So I need to ask the question, we're called the move. Where are you going? Where are you headed? What are you aspiring to? Are you aiming high? Are you digging deep? What is it that you're digging into? Are you digging into your work? And your students, you should dig into your work. But you're digging into your work exclusively with the hope that I will be plugged into the great machinery of this economy. No, of course not. That's what you're, if you're not thinking beyond that, what's going to happen? This, this culture, all of you, values you for your product. It doesn't value you as a person. I am calling you, men, to think about the kind of person you're becoming. The kind of person that you are. Are you becoming a better man? Are you even asking yourself that question in these very important years in college? Well, um... We're called to move. We're called to move toward Jesus independence. We're called to aspire to become better men, uh, to move from our place of apathy and restlessness, to become more like Jesus. And when we do, we'll find that we're marked. We're marked in a certain way. We're marked by character. We're marked by care. Uh, in our culture, we certainly assume that men are marked. Uh, marked by certain cultural signs of masculinity. Whatever those are, they change generation to generation. Uh, whether it's the mustache, the sideburns, the plaid shirt, or soul patch or goatee, or the tight-fitting black muscle shirt, whatever it is in any given day, we have these cultural signs of what masculinity is supposed to be. Um, I, I don't really know right now. I don't really care. I have two kids. I'm more than masculine enough for myself. So I don't, I don't care about thinking anyone else's preconceived cultural assumptions about what masculinity is. Um, but we have these, and Scripture has these too, um, in their character, and its character. We see this in verses 2 and 3 in chapter 3. And, and what we have here is a lot of characteristics, a lot of traits. Uh, therefore, an overseer, this person that we should aspire at least to be like men, uh, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. A lot of stuff. And if that sounds hard, um, this isn't much actually harder than lots of other character lists. Go read the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Go read the Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. That everyone is called to. Men, women, children, anyone that calls himself a believer. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's not easy either. Um, God calls us to be people marked by character. But, but he says something specifically here about these men. And it can all be summed up by the phrase, above reproach. That's a hard one for us. It sounds like it's 
intended to stuff the life out of everything. And that's not the intention here. Um, this is not the avoidance of all appearance of evil. It is instead living a life of faithfulness, not perfection, because no one does that besides Jesus, but of faithfulness. Uh, and, and we sort of see that hinted at, I think, in the text. An uh, overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Uh, that's not saying you have to get married. Remember last week we talked about singleness. It's saying for this particular guy, this overseer, he should be a, and this is literally the Greek, the original language, a one-woman man. It's not even saying he has to be married. It is saying if he's going to be married, he is faithful forever to that one person. He's a one-woman man for life. He's a faithful, dependable person. He's clear in his thinking. Uh, he's sober-minded. He's not clouded by his emotions or his passions or his wants. Uh, really interesting study is being done uh, recently about how testosterone, this is in the end of men as well, perhaps clouds the clear, rational thinking of men, especially in the stock market. Traditionally, it's been assumed that women would be terrible businessmen because they're irrational and too emotional. Uh, recent studies are men are such risk takers because of the testosterone that actually maybe we should have women doing the finances after all. Um, but this man is supposed to be sober-minded, clear-minded, self-controlled, respectable. Uh, this is a man who doesn't have everything together, but he has himself under control. He, he knows who he is. He's dependable. He's not ruled by his passion. And in verse 3, we see he's a man who's able to say no. He's not a drunkard. He can say no to excess. He's not violent but gentle. He can say, oh, well, good. I'm glad the Bible doesn't advocate uh, manly violence. Uh, it's more than that. The call here is to be gentle. And that's, that's a strength that's very rare among all people, especially men. It's hard to be gentle. Men, you are by nature passive, aggressive. You are not called to be that way. You are not created to be that way. You are called to be instigators that move persistently, faithfully into creation, into relationships. The fall made you scared, insecure. And when you don't know what to do, you're passive. You wait back. And when things don't go right, you sort of wait. You sort of warn. You sort of threaten. Like, y'all better fix it out there. I'm going to get serious in a minute now. You, you drop subtle hints. Guys, think about the way you treat your roommates. Subtle hints. Oh, come on, man. Did you get my hint? Until all of a sudden, what do you do? You blow up. You do the aggressive things. Girls, you're smiling because you know guys like this. You've seen your dad do it. Um, it happens. Guys, this is the way we often are. We are, in our sin, often violent. Whether it's physical, hopefully not. At least emotionally sometimes. And Paul is saying, there should be none of that. There should be none of that. You move gently toward others. You don't demand your way. You've learned uh, to give in, even. not quarrelsome. You've learned how to reason with others. That doesn't mean you need to back down your, your, your submissive uh, walking mat for others. But you're not a fighter. You're not quarrelsome. Uh, you're not a lover of money. It's not all about you. You've learned how to say no to things, to yourself in some ways. And um, it's important here to note that this guy which seems almost impossible, is not some emotionless, passionless, uh, dumb, grinning buffoon. Because that's actually, if you read all this, you can see get that image. Like, okay, he's just married to this one woman who doesn't do anything. He sit there and smile on the front porch in the rocking chair. Um, no, he's, he actually does stuff. Uh, we see in verses uh, 4 and 5 that he's one that's called to care. 
And if we're not careful, we can misunderstand what these verses are saying. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Um, this kind of man is one that's called to care for other people in relationships. The assumption is he does care. That he has relationships, he's intentional about them. He has a wife, he has children, he cares for them. And this is not just sort of like, hey, y'all, shut up and get on the table and kind of submissiveness. The language here is actually, he understands what his wife and kids are like. And so he manages them well. There's an emotional intelligence involved in this man. He listens. He knows his children. He doesn't exasperate them. He fosters a relationship with his wife. He cares for them well. And that's what uh, Paul says it's all about, down in verse 12. Uh, the end is that they would manage their children and their own households well, so that they would be those who serve the church well. Where is that verse? Uh, it's actually in verse 5. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Uh, the issue here is caring. Does he care? Is he able to competently care for others? The assumption here then is that you are willing not only to be responsible for yourself, you're willing to be responsible for others. You're willing to step up and serve other people, to put their needs ahead of your own. And, and that's frightening, guys, because deep down you doubt your ability to do that. Lots of you. Again, uh, lots of us uh, are still the insecure people we were in eighth grade. Girls, you're trying to impress me. Not all of you, some of you. You're still the insecure girl you were in eighth grade. Guys, you're still the insecure eighth grade boy, and you're scared to death that someone's going to discover your lack of competency, your lack of wisdom, your lack of knowledge, your lack of power and prowess. I understand. Uh, this text is telling us it doesn't matter. It does matter. We've got to work that insecurity. But in the end, a man marked by character, a man marked by Jesus who cares for others will say, yeah, I don't have my stuff together. Yeah, I might really, I just might totally screw this up. It doesn't matter. My calling to care for people is greater than my reputation. Who cares what people think about me? I'm going to do this because I'm called to care for others. So it's when we're confronted by these situations, when we're confronted and tested, it's a, it's a word used here, that we learn what we're really all about, uh, what we're really marked by. Man, do you know what you're marked by? Let me give you a little example. This is a fun one. It tells you what kind of man I am. Um, we were coming home with my family um, from Costco or some big box store this summer. As we're driving through one of the curvy roads in Pittsburgh, I see a couple teenage boys on different sides of the road. They're probably 13. My wife saw them too, but didn't know what they were doing. I knew what they were doing. They were doing the old invisible road trip. Guys get on different sides of the road. Jared right smiling because he's probably done it a hundred times. The idea is that if you stretch this invisible road, and as a car drives by, you act like this road drag you and pull you so the people stop and freak out. Well, I knew exactly what was going on. I'd seen the old invisible road trip. So here they are. And you should see them. And all their male, boyish, manly posturing, how quickly it changed. They ran as fast as they could. <laughs> they ran as fast as they could. There were three of them. Before, before I had the time, I, I stopped the car and backed up so I could talk to them. All the while, laughing hysterically. Like, what are you doing? I was like, this will, this will be fun. Two of the kids were completely gone. All I saw was their the back of their heels. And the third guy, the ringleader, just did their 
plaintive look of fear. He was afraid. And so I thought it was funny, but at the same time, I felt terrible. I felt sort of terrible. I, I wish I had been able to go out and, and you know, the farmer and the kid and say, that was a funny joke. That was a funny joke I pulled on you. <laughs> it's all, it's all okay. But confronted, when confronted, all the posturing dropped. And what I saw in those boys was hiding fear, insecurity, flight. Man, are, 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 you, are you concerned that when uh, push comes to shove, people see what's really there? What they're going to see is your insecurity and fear. Are you going to run and hide? Some of you are, content, are, are even now, while present, hiding. Uh, this text calls these men to be hospitable. Look at that verse two. Hospitable. You know what that means? It means you're the kind of guy that moves toward people. You welcome them in. You make them feel at home. I know how vulnerable that makes you feel. But that means they might get to know me. They might see what I really am. They might realize I'm not nearly as cool as I think I think they think I am. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. You're, you're not called to this kind of In fact, the psychic burden of the is crazy. People might figure it out anyway. You're called to be marked by character and by caring. Well, um, men marked by Jesus display his kind of character and his kind of love. They step out anyway. They risk their lives if need be. They, they certainly risk their time and their reputations to care for other people. Um, and it's really interesting when you talk to guys, especially guys in relationships, full of bravado, which are really good guys, man. I'd do anything for my girl. I'd, I'd die for her. Would you? Maybe you would. Here's a good question. Are you men enough to protect your woman from yourself? Do you have a right understanding of your own character? Um, the realization that um, you are full of all kinds of crazy, hormonal, dri- testosterone-driven passions, and that you're more likely to put your physical needs and wants above her well-being. Are you able to protect that young sister uh, that looks up to you and, and cares for you, are you able to protect her from yourself? Yeah. You might be willing to step in front of a bus for her. Are you willing to say no to yourself for the good of someone else? That's a hard one, gentlemen. And uh, you don't become that kind of person on your own. those kind of men as we dig deep into Jesus. Ladies, think carefully about the kind of man you're pursuing. Think carefully about the kind of man you're pursuing. Uh, I'm not uh, telling you to assume the worst about the guys in your life. Keep your eyes open. Listen. Listen to your friends. Listen to your family. Uh, And watch and look and see if they're putting their concerns, their passions, their interests over your good. And of course, your good at any given moment might feel like whatever feels good. Step back and ask what's really for you. We're called men to be movers, those who move uh, and aspire to be like Jesus, and uh, those who dig deep into Him, who are dependent on Him, and those that are subsequently thereby marked by His character. 
and marked by caring like he cares. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne was a great writer of short stories. I don't know if you know that. Most of you probably read the Scarlet Letter and said, I'll never read anything about this guy again. Um, he actually wrote lots of wonderful, wonderful short stories. I, I strongly recommend them. Uh, especially during the fall. I don't know why this fits. This fits. Anyway, um, one of his stories is called The Great Stone Face. And it's the story of a young boy named Ernest. Ernest uh, grew up fatherless, from what we can tell in the story. He grew up in a small uh, village in the valley. And this valley was uh, blessed uh, with a particular uh, strange um, geographical phenomenon, which is called the Great Stone Face. Uh, far down the valley, up in the mountain range, over, overlooking the valley, was this cultural, geographical gift from nature called the Great Stone Face. This face carved into the mountainous rock uh, so clear that it was undeniably a face. And a remarkable face of that. One marked by intelligence and wisdom and benevolence. And this thing had been there for centuries and so legend grew up around it about how uh, at some point in, in history uh, one would come like the great stone face. Uh, not only that looked like him but was like him in this, in this surpassingly good wise caring character. Ernest grows up a, a poor but uh, faithful, simple young boy. He, he loves the legends. He believes the legends. When he's not working, he contemplates, like many people did, uh, the great stone face that, that uh, overlooks the valley. And uh, during his lifetime, uh, many uh, are rumored, have heard, uh, could possibly be this coming form. Um, all these were, for the most part, men that were from the area that went away and achieved great renown. He went away and made his millions. He came back. And surely this man of uh, surpassable wealth and the power that came with it and potentially with the generosity, surely this was the great stone face. He kept all his wealth and he himself eventually shriveled up and was gone. People realized indeed he was. The second was a man of great military might. He had uh, commanded battles. He had uh, put many to the sword in the cause of justice. And he retired back to the valley with great acclaim, and everyone shouted and uh, believed he was a great stone everyone but Ernest, who looked and saw in him a good man, but not one marked with the kind of benevolence and care that was in that great visage looking at him. The last was a great political statesman, full of wisdom uh, and ability to persuade others and lots of power, uh, but he liked the integrity of heart. He knew it today, but he didn't believe it. Ernest never believed he was a great man. Well, the fourth person in the story is a great poet. And the great poet enters the town, unlike these other men, with no renown whatsoever. He simply gets off and goes looking for someone he's looking for. Because this poet from far away had heard of this simple man of surpassing wisdom and beauty and care. And what had happened over all these years, and Ernest is now an old man, is as he contemplated the great stone face. Uh, this visage and all its wonderful wisdom and beauty and benevolence had been at work expanding the sympathies of his own heart, teaching him wisdom, teaching him love. And the poet sits down with him and talks to him and realizes that this man, Ernest, knows in reality everything that a poet, the best poet, knows only in verse. And later that day, as Ernest meets with the people that he cares for, Ernest uh, stands, if you will, uh, up against, uh, with his back to the great stone face. The poet listening rapidly, uh, watching Ernest uh, pour out his heart uh, as he cares for his people, he looks at Ernest and looks at the great stone face. He can't, he can't what this is. Behold, 
the great stone face. Ernest is the great stone face. And these people that had known him all his life as a simple farmer, up until the last few years, they realized he's sort of the smart guy. Saw it for the first time. Yes, it is the great stone face. And Ernest finishes his lecture, grabs the poet by the arm, walks back to his house, and continues to wait uh, for the great stone face. A man of great character and care. Why not tell that story? Men, that's what it's like for you to become a man. Our, our, our world and your own heart are going to tell you all kinds of false stories about what manhood is and how to become a man. Uh, in this story, the way you become like a man is to consider Jesus. He is painted clearly on the horizon. It's clear in Scripture what he's like. And when you study him, you see his character and you see his care. And as you contemplate him, as you study him, you become like him. You become like him. Uh, marked by his care. Marked by concern. 